Good morning, church. Oh, is everybody awake? All right. <laughs> Got an amen. Wow. <laughs> Praise the Lord. So the message today uh, is titled, Victory Today is Mine. And so uh, I, I have the opportunity and the privilege of uh, closing this series on the seven deadly sins. So there'll be a brief summary in a sense, and then the challenge of preaching on the last uh, sin, uh, the sin of lust, which is uh, a challenge to preach on. And then as our brother Tim likes to say, I get to land the airplane too. So uh, uh, that's the task of this morning. So I want to confess something right away to the congregation. Uh, I started watching American Ninja Warrior. <laughs> you know, anything with the word ninja in it, I would normally just avoid, not even look at or think about. But we were at some friend's house in, in uh, southern Missouri, and my friend, whose TV is on all day long, had the American Ninja Warrior on. And I've got to confess, I was like, oh my goodness, this is great. <laughs> Uh, these physical things that they ask these people to do are, are incredible. Is there anybody in here who has not caught a glimpse of that? Oh, there's a few of you. Well, don't bother doing it because it's a trap, okay? But uh, I'm not recommending it. I'm just saying that I've watched it. And I love physical things, so uh, it's a pretty amazing. So a couple of weeks ago, the finals, they had the finals for the year. And uh, there's levels one and two. One and two are pretty incredible. I mean, if you could see the things that they do. But then, in the finals, they go through level three. And level three is like impossible. But there's two men that finish. And there's some ladies that do this, and they are amazingly strong. And, and so uh, they got through level three, these two men, but they failed in level four. So I thought a lot about this, and I thought, you know, we're, we're crazy in this country. We, we've got all these things that we do, but we have to do it to excess. I mean, it's like beyond the beyond what they expect these people to do. And I started thinking about, you know, we, we've got a thing with excess in this country, in the United States. Uh, in fact, there's a book that was just uh, published, written. Uh, it's called The United States of Excess. <coughs> I'm not recommending the book. I haven't read it, but that's the title. The, the author, his name is Robert Parlberg, and he's honing in on consumption of fuel and food. But he's talking about excess. So the word excessively, I think you understand what it means, but let me define it. Uh, to a greater degree or in greater amounts than necessary, normal, or desirable. So that's, think about that. <laughs> Greater amounts than necessary, normal, or desirable. So think about our world, our country especially. Excessive work. The United States are always accused, the people in the United States, of, of working excessively. Uh, we work longer than most countries in the world, and I think harder. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it can be an excessive thing, as you know. Uh, we hear the word excessive force especially now when we think about our police officers. People are always talking about excessive force. Uh, how about excessive debt? This is something that Americans have bought into. Credit cards, uh, a lot of young people, a lot of older people get trapped in credit. Excessive debt, 
So there's this thing about excessive, uh, excessive crime. Turn on the news, watch the Chicago news if you want to de be depressed and, and see what's going on, but there's excessive crime in, in our country. Uh, and because of that, we have excessive incarceration as well. Uh, you know that I love prison ministry. I spent a lot of time in prisons, and we have more prisoners uh, than anybody in the entire world, uh, percentage-wise and numerically. So something going on there. Excessive speeding. <laughs> Get on Route 88, on the, uh, work, going to work in the morning or coming back. Go the speed limit and see how long you can live because people are excessively speeding, and yes, I'm usually uh, right there trying to keep up with them. Uh, I always kind of laugh, though. Um, it seems as if God has only allowed me to have four-cylinder cars my entire life uh, because I have this propensity to maybe go a little faster than I need to. I've actually had two eight-cylinder cars, but they didn't run well. So anytime you'd start speeding, it'd start missing, and so I never have been able to speed. So uh, that's probably a good thing. Uh, and, and you think about the TV stuff that's going on. Uh, extreme makeover. Everything's excessive. Extreme makeover. Who needs an extreme makeover? Well, God created us the way that we are. Uh, the biggest loser. Uh, it, you know, it can't be just the person that lost the most weight. It's the biggest loser, the toughest mutter. You know, all these terms that we hear, the biggest, the fastest, the craziest, the wildest, and on and on. And even, here we go, mega churches. Huh? So the, we buy into it even as Christians, this excessive thing. So yes, our nation, America, is obsessed. But this problem that I'm talking about, it's not only the United States of excess, it's a problem that is common to mankind, worldwide, humanity. The problem lies within ourself. I want you to stand with me. I'm going to just read two verses from James. This will be your last opportunity to stand for a little while. So stand with me. James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, if you'll allow me to read that. Here's what the Word of God says. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. I want you to pay attention to that word desire today. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Let's just pray. Father, would you teach us this morning? Would you please be honored and glorified? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Notice what that, that last verse, the end of that verse said, and when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. So I want to say something this morning about these seven deadly sins that we've talked about. All sin is deadly. Okay? Understand that. All sin is deadly, not just the seven deadly sins. The early church, and Phil told us this, the early church called these cardinal sins, uh, and that meant that they, they couldn't be forgiven. But, you know, what sin literally means is to miss the mark. 
and we all miss the mark, for all have sinned and come short of God's glory. That, that's what, the, what God's word says. And all sin separates us from God. And the wages of sin is death, according to the scriptures. It's death. So all sin is deadly. I want us to, to know that. So if all sin leads to death, and you might want to question that and look in the scriptures, sometimes it leads to physical death. Think of Ananias and Sapphira. They gave some money to the church. And they wanted the church to believe that they'd given all of their money because they had this excessive desire to be noticed for what they were doing. And, and God knew what had happened, and he demanded their lives that very day. So it led to physical death. And, and then oftentimes, uh, spiritual or sin leads to a spiritual death. Uh, God talks about unbelief and hardness of heart because of our selfish desires, and sometimes that actually leads to spiritual death. So our need for more, I want us to think about that today, our need for more, our excessive desires, it began early, <laughs> real early. Genesis chapter 3, just a couple of verses, and again, Phil covered a little of this, so it's kind of a little summary, but I want you to hear it because it's important to the, to the passage today. Uh, Genesis 3, verses uh, 5 and 6. This is where the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. And here's what he says. For God knows that when you eat of this, the fruit that he said you shouldn't eat, when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and here it comes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. There's that excessive desire. God had given them everything in the garden. I mean everything. Everything that they could possibly need. And then Satan twists it and tells them, no, nah, there's a little more. You can be like God, and you can have this knowledge, and so they ate. So there's this excessive desire that we have, a desire to make one wise, a, a desire to be like God. And that's a human, it's a human downfall that we all have, is this desire to be our own God. So let's talk about our strong desires. Uh, I want you to listen for the word excess and listen for the word desire in these definitions. And this is where we get a little rehearsal, a little review of the seven deadly sins. And you're going to say, oh, I've already heard this. No, 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 no. Listen, and listen to what it says here. Envy, desire to have an item or experience that someone else possesses. Gluttony, excessive, ongoing consumption of food or drink or as Phil told us, a lot of other things. Greed, an excessive pursuit of material possession. Lust, today's topic that we'll talk about. An uncontrollable passion or longing, especially for sexual desires. Pride, 
excessive view of oneself without regard to others. Sloth, excessive laziness, or the failure to act or use one's God-given talents and gifts. Wrath, uncontrollable feelings of anger and hate towards another person. So did you hear it through there? Did you hear about that desire? So I, I think the root of our problem when it comes to sin is a desire for more, for more, a, a human need for excess. And this goes totally against the grain of Christianity. <laughs> Jesus summed up what Christianity is in, in just a couple of uh, thoughts. He said to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind, and then to love others, love your neighbor as yourself. So that's the opposite of what we see with this excessive desire. And you know there's one other thing in here. I'm going to say that God wants us to hear this, because you won't hear this very often. I think God wants us to love our own bodies in the sense that our body is the temple of the living God. So <laughs> that goes against this excessive desire that we're talking about. So the scriptures delineate this. So I want you to hear this. God gave us the scriptures so that he can delineate these things to us, these problems. So I want us to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And I'm going to read 11 verses there. And if I'm not mistaken, the last time I preached, I think I used this text, but that doesn't matter. I think we, we can hear it again. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 11. And this is where God delineates for us. Paul's writing this to the church, to the church at Corinth. And, and, and God is speaking this to the church today. And so hear how the scriptures delineate this problem. Paul says, for I want you to know, brothers and sisters, church, that our fathers were all under the cloud. Now, he's talking about the, the generation that wandered in, uh, in Egypt, or outside of Egypt, in the wilderness. And as he's talking about that generation, uh, he says that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses, that's the law, in the cloud, in the sea, and all ate of the same spiritual food. Uh, they had heavenly manna. And all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock, capital R, that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown. They died, death, in the wilderness. Now these things took place, this is where it's delineated, these things took place as examples for us, the church, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell, they died in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents. They physically died. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example. But they were written down, they were delineated for our instruction today, on whom the end of the ages has come. 
the end of the ages, the kingdom of God in Jesus Christ. <laughs> so these things are delineated for us. And I want us to see that sin in that generation was characterized by things like complaining. <laughs> complaining. If you go back to that scripture, the people of God complained against him because they didn't have the things that they wanted. And they were dissatisfied with God's provision. We're tired of this manna. Give us some meat. I want to go back to Egypt. I want the leeks and the onions. And, and these things led to death. They led to physical death. And there was jealousy in these people over God's chosen leaders, if you go on and read. <laughs> and that led to punishment. And there was unbelief and lack of faith. And that sin led to physical and spiritual death. They denied the true bread of life, and they complained. They were dissatisfied. There was jealousy, excessive desire for more. God gives us so much, doesn't he? I mean, think about it. I, I know there's challenges and needs in this congregation, but think about what God has given us. In the spiritual realm, in the physical realm, God has given us so much. He's such a great, great God. So I have to ask, though, when it comes to these excessive desires, where are you and I? You know, I have to look at my own heart. Where are the excessive desires in my own life? Maybe you think this doesn't apply. I hope not, but if you do, there's a standard defined in the scriptures. <laughs> the Lord Jesus was careful to define the standard for us for the kingdom of God in the Sermon on the Mount. Do you remember any of those messages on the Sermon on the Mount? I do, because I had to preach them. But uh, uh, those were challenging messages. <laughs> so lest any of us think that we're not uh, affected by excessive desire and, and uh, excess, anger, he tells us, the Lord taught us that anger in your heart, and anger comes from sometimes wanting more, thinking you deserve more, all kinds of things. Anger in your heart is the same as murder, according to what God, of the Lord Jesus taught. He taught that lust in your heart, which is wanting something that isn't yours for evil purposes, he says lust in your heart is exactly the same as fornication, the physical act. Uh, we're to love our enemies, uh, those that misuse us, and even though uh, we're challenged that way. We're to give to the needy without fanfare. He says don't Ex don't expect people to uh, honor you because you give. Just give, and give out of the generosity of your heart. Don't have these excessive desires. And, and don't judge others without the recognition of your own sin. I want to talk about that just for a minute. I think when it comes to this type of judgment, Christians are really challenged here. The church is really challenged in how we, how we judge. And we've got to speak with discretion. Um, we often judge others who are involved in outward sin. A prisoner I spoke with was judging some men that were Christians that were on the same pod as he was. And he was judging them because of what they watched on TV and and how they talked. And I thought to myself, 
with, I knew what the man had done, and I thought to myself, with what you have done, you're judging other people? So <laughs> that's this desire to place ourselves above other people. Here's what Jesus said, and this is pretty amazing. I'd never really thought about it this way in Matthew chapter 11. Hear what the Lord Jesus says. And he's speaking to, he's speaking to cities in the nation of Israel, unrepentant cities. <laughs> and the Lord is talking uh, about his ministry in those cities and the mighty works that he had done there and the miracles that he had done. So Matthew 11 and 20, Jesus, then he began, Jesus began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Now I'm going to jump down to verse 23, and he picks on one of these cities, and he says, you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades, to hell. For if the mighty works done in you, the works that Jesus had done in their town, if they had been done in Sodom, we know what Sodom represents, it would have remained until this day, Sodom would have if they'd seen the works of Jesus, he says. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Wow, we've got to be careful as we judge other groups of people and how we look at those people. <laughs> we, we need to make sure that our own hearts are repentant before we speak words of judgment. And we need to make sure... <laughs> that the mighty works that God has done in our lives, and I just talked about that, that leads us to repentant hearts. And we've got to beware of our own excessive and evil desires. So that brings me to today's topic. There's a sin that's against your own body. That's love. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 18 through 20. This is where we find out what it means to have a sin against your own body. So Paul's talking to a church at Corinth who has been involved in some awful sin, and in particular, at least one person in a terrible sin that's almost unmentionable, and he's talking about fleeing sexual immorality. But in verse 18, he says, flee from sexual immorality Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. And here it comes. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your own body. <laughs> so this, this sin against our own body is a result of lust, the seventh deadly sin that we're talking about, uncontrollable passion or longing, especially for sexual desires. Start at the beginning. God invented marriage. <laughs> One man one woman for a lifetime. You know, he blessed them, 
He told them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and have dominion over every living thing. That was a big job, right? <laughs> it's a huge job. And so God, in his graciousness and his goodness, he created a helper. He made a helper for Adam. Oh, my, what a helper. Huh? Oh, men, you could say amen, amen. Oh, thank you, Lord, for making a helper like Eve. And you've heard me say the words out of his mouth, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And then in Hebrew, he goes, Isha, which means woman, woman. And you have to imagine that. I don't think, you know, the scriptures, you read the scriptures, it's like, God created man. Da, 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 da. No, imagine. When he saw Eve, he was excited. Most beautiful thing he'd ever seen that God had created out of his own flesh for him. What a beautiful thing, and I love that picture. And, and it goes on, the scripture goes on and says, we're to leave our father and mother, he's talking to the man, and hold fast to your wife, become one flesh. God invented sex. He did. And he did it for procreation that we could fill the earth and, and do what he told us to do, but it's also for our benefit, for our joy. It's a beautiful thing that God created. And they were both naked and not ashamed. You know what? That was pure and holy desire right there. Pure and holy desire. What a picture. But we've heard from God's word that lust is a sinful desire. So what in the world happened, you know? <laughs> what happened? Well, sin entered the equation, you know that. Uh, listen to the uh, description of lust from, from Peter, 1 Peter 2.11. Peter says to the church, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, let me just stop there for a minute. That's something that we've forgotten a lot, is that we're only sojourners. Somebody tell me what a sojourner is. Anybody? A traveler. We're just traveling through as God's people. And, and uh, exiles, <laughs> exiles, he says, sojourners and exiles. So we, this is not our home. We don't really belong here. And, and, and yet our excessive desires sometimes make us just keep grasping and grasping and grasping and holding on to this earth and the things that it has. And there's good things here. I understand that. I understand the challenge. But we need to be reminded, and Peter reminds us through the Spirit of God that we're sojourners and exiles. And he says to you sojourners and exiles, abstain from the passions, the desires of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. <laughs> and Paul says in our passage that we just read, flee from sexual immorality. So there's been a sad development. Satan has taken God's words and his gifts, and he's distorted them, totally distorted them. He's cast, he casts doubt on God's goodness. That's how Satan works, and he continues to work that way. And you know what? The world has taken God's gift of sex 
which is a beautiful and a pure desire in the correct context. And the world has twisted it up into knots, taking marriage and trying to destroy it, marriage and the family. <laughs> and you know what? People say, well, it's, it's a distortion of love. It's way more than a distortion of love. Lust, sex in the wrong context, has become an excessive, selfish desire to be met in any weird fashion or form that fulfills our sick longings. <laughs> you know, Jesus is pretty clear. He teaches that we can become slaves to sin. You know, lust is an enslaving sin. If you don't believe me, talk to some people that I know that it's destroyed their lives, it's destroyed their marriages, it's cast some of them into prison, it's cast some of them into no relationship. It's an enslaving sin, lust. It's not freedom. It's funny, because the world tells you, freedom, man, do anything you want. My generation of the 60s, you know, Love, free love, you know, it's just, it's crazy. It's not freedom at all, it's slavery. Lust and sex in the wrong context. <laughs> and not only does it enslave us, but it corrupts us. Sin corrupts us, it corrupts relationships, it corrupts families, it corrupts people. You know what corrupt means? It means to make rotten, rotten. And Paul teaches us that there was a time that God gave them up in the book of Romans. He gave people up who had gone too far in the realm of sexual desire. He gave them over to their own lust, to impurity. So lust endangers our soul. It really does. Uh, we think it's not a big deal, but it's a big deal. And it goes on to say, to the degradation of their own bodies. Lust destroys our bodies, it endangers our bodies. And here's a really sad part for me. It has permeated the church. Keith and I know we talk, and we as pastors on Mondays, we talk, and I, I don't know how many times, we don't keep track of these things, but often on a Monday there's, well, did you hear that pastor so-and-so fell? Did you hear that this person fell? It, it's permeated our churches today, people in our own congregations that are, are deeply, deeply involved in lust. First John says, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride and possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. But maybe the saddest thing is that lust destroys our fellowship. It does. It destroys our fellowship with God and with one another. What a sad thing. And there's a, a serious denouncement. God gives us a serious denouncement. This is from Revelation 21.8, but you can find it in other places in the Scripture. And I want to read this to you. Here's a warning, a denouncement. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, and here it is, the sexually immoral, 
sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. That's pretty scary, isn't it? Isn't that, I mean, when you read a passage like that, doesn't that go, <gasps> do you see yourself in there somewhere? I mean, let's be honest. We see ourselves in some of those passages. So what in the world is God talking about? Well, here's the question that a person needs to ask themselves when they read a passage like this. And I, and I ask myself, do I continually go on in this sin? You know, if you go to 1 John, it talks about continuing on in this sin. So if I have this sin of lust, or whatever it is, this excessive desire, do I continue to go on and on in it? If, you, if I do, then that, that warning applies to me. <laughs> Here, here's another question. Is this my lifestyle? Is my lifestyle a lifestyle of lust and excessive desire? If it is, then that warning applies to me. Have I truly repented? And I'm going to define that in a minute. If not, then that warning applies to me. Now, here's a great definition from God's word about repentance, and it's from Proverbs 28, 13. I don't know why we don't hear this more often, but it's simple, and I can, you know, I always say I need the cookies on the bottom shelf. Well, this puts the cookies on the bottom shelf where even Dave can reach them. So here's what it says, Proverbs 28, 13. Whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper. So if you're hiding this excessive desire, this lust, or trying to hide it, you're not going to prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Isn't that beautiful? Confess, that's part of it. Lord, forgive me for what I did, but then I keep doing it? No, no, no. Confesses and forsakes, walks the other direction. That's what repentance is. And so <laughs> that's what this serious denouncement is trying to get us to do, is to quit that lifestyle, to quit being defined by that, to confess it and forsake them and find the mercy of the Lord. Thursday, we were at the Illinois Youth Center, and the young man that I was with was, was teaching about King David and Bathsheba. And of course, the young men ages 13 to 18 are fascinated by this story. They're fascinated. The question that we started with was, can somebody be forgiven for murder? And a couple of these young men that are in the Illinois Youth Center have been involved in, in a shooting or a murder. So there, this is a question that's important to them. Can someone be forgiven for murder? And, and, and you know, the, the topic, uh, you know, David was involved not only in a, in a murder, <laughs> but appropriate to what we're preaching today. Think about what David had, what God had given David. He'd given him everything. And if you read what Nathan said to him, <laughs> wasn't it enough? I gave you... Uh, wives, I gave you a kingdom, I gave you this, I gave you that, and this excessive desire, you should have been at work, but you weren't, caused you to go after this woman and then murder her husband? Huh. So here's the thing, though, that we ended with about King David. Here's what King David did. He owned it up right away. He said, I have sinned against the Lord. 
I have sinned against the Lord. There were results and repercussions, really sad ones and awful ones. But he repented and said, I have sinned against the Lord. That's what God wants us to do, those of us that have been involved in sexual sin and lust and desire, recognize that we have sinned against the Lord and that we're the temple of the living God. <laughs> so God gives us some saving directions. I have a friend, Tom Beatty, and he says, pastors have been way, way too timid when they teach about lust. And you know, maybe I've, I've, uh, maybe I've been challenged in that area. But I'm going to turn to Proverbs 5, and I'm going to read Proverbs 5 to us. Proverbs 5 is a great passage dealing with the idea of sexual immorality. I'm going to read it, and I'm going to make a few comments. Not many. You'll look at this and say, well, this is addressed to young men. But you have to remember that the Proverbs are allegorical. It's an allegory. And, and these are directed really to all God's people, to, to women and men. So, so if, you, if you're thinking this doesn't apply to me as a woman or a young person or an older person, it applies to all of us. It's the word of God. So listen, warning against adultery is the title here, but we could call it any fornication. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding that you may keep discretion and that your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil, but in the end she is bitter as wormwood sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol, which is Hades or hell. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. He's describing temptation. Any temptation for, for men, for women. And now, O oh sons, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her, him, and do not go near the door of her house. Keep your way far from him, her. You know, Job 31.1, Job makes a great statement. He says, I have made a covenant with my eyes. Job. Job had everything. He was a man you know, that, that, that honored God, and he made a covenant with his eyes not to look upon a virgin, is what he says. <laughs> so here we are. God is warning us to stay away. And so I think that in our day and age, we have to make a covenant with our eyes, for sure, because there's a lot of things that can be seen but we have to make a covenant as well with our ears, the things that we hear, with our hands that operate keyboards and mouses that can click to anything we want to see, and certainly with our, with our feet to go to places that we shouldn't go. We make a covenant with God, and, and you know what? This is some advice 
those that struggle in this area, make a covenant with a brother or sister or a wife or a husband to challenge you in this area. <laughs> I'm struggling with this, you could say to this person. I have a brother that I meet with, he's not literally a brother, a brother in Christ, and we ask each other these kinds of questions. Are you struggling in this area? And yes, I am, or no, I'm not, and here is, here, pray for me. So make a covenant with the Lord in this area, but make a covenant with somebody else and the parts of your body to keep you from doing these things. Keep your way far from her, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless. Let strangers take their fill of your strength, and your labors go to a house of a foreigner, to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life you groan, here it is, when your flesh and body are consumed. Remember I told you it's, it corrupts our bodies? And you say, how I hated discipline, and, and my heart despised reproof. In other words, I wouldn't listen. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Then he goes on and says, drink water from your own cistern. <laughs> Flowing water from your own well. That's a beautiful picture, Jeremiah talks about cisterns. He talks about polluted waters. So <laughs> the question immediately comes, are we drinking polluted water? You know, and what do I mean by that? Well, where do we go for our entertainment? Uh, do we go to the pure, not for entertainment, but do we go to the pure living word of God daily, which gives life? I think some of us spend more time looking at the TV and the computer and movies, and, and, and I'm guilty in some of these areas, so I'm preaching to me and to you, than we do in the living word, the pure, living, life-giving word of God. <laughs> so where do you go for living water? And, and, and Solomon, whoever wrote this, says, <laughs> uh, drink water from your own cistern, flowing waters from your own well. Now he's talking about your own mate, your own wife, your own husband. Should your springs be scattered abroad? Streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your foundation be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. There's a beautiful picture of loving your own wife, your own husband, the person that God has given you. I praise God for my wife and our relationship. I'm so thankful for that. He goes on and says, Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders, the Lord is watching, he ponders all our paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare this man, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin, and here it comes, he dies for a lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. That's pretty serious stuff. <laughs> One more thing I want to say, because some of us are unmarried in this room. There's the word chastity. When's the last time you heard the word chastity? Be honest, has it been days? Anybody heard it in the last couple of days? 
I don't think so. It's an old-fashioned word that people don't talk about anymore. But chastity <laughs> means to refrain from sexual activity before marriage. <laughs> and some people think that's unreasonable. That's what it's taught in the world. Are you kidding me? With all the hormones that are flowing, we're going to expect this? It's not unreasonable. <laughs> we show respect, first of all, for the Lord when we're Christian and we practice chastity and we show respect <laughs> for one another. You know, if you've got a, a girlfriend or a boyfriend that's pressuring you to, to go ahead and cross that line that you don't want to cross, that's not respect, that's not love, that's selfish desire, excessive selfish desire. And, and so uh, self-respect, too. Respect yourself. It's a beautiful thing to be able to say, I have kept myself pure. That's a beautiful thing. Chastity that God has planned for us. And it's not too late to start. Somebody might be thinking, I don't know. You know, I already blew it in that area. <laughs> but you know what? It's not too late to make that commitment to being chaste and to starting all over and walking in purity and holiness. It's never too late for that. Thank you, Lord. And you know what? A person that is chaste, has, they're free. They're free. They're free from worry about who's going to hear, see, what. They're free from the, the thought of disease. They're free from sin. It's a beautiful freedom. I'd ask this question, you know, where could I go but to the Lord, the living water, pure and life-giving, quenching our thirst and becoming a spring of water that wells up inside of us to eternal life. So let me finish the last thing, the antidote for sin, all sin. The antidote for sin is Christ in us the hope of glory. <laughs> People are funny. You know, the church came up with the seven deadly sins, and it wasn't much later when somebody came up with the seven virtues that would counter the seven deadly sins. So I'm going to read them to you. You listen to these, because there's a, a couple of words I want you, one of the words is the same, desire. I want you to listen to these words, for these words carefully. Desire, help, service, and others. So hear this. And you might want to write these down because they're pretty cool. Uh, the, the virtue of kindness cures envy by placing the desire to help others above the need to supersede them. Isn't that great? I, I think it's great. The virtue of temperance cures gluttony by implanting the desire to be healthy, therefore making one fit to help others. I think that's a beautiful picture. The virtue of charity or love cures greed by putting the desire to help others 
above storing up treasures for ourselves. Huh, that's a great thing. The, the virtue of chastity or self-control, it cures lust by controlling passions. And it leverages that energy, that passion, for the good of others. Here's one. Humility. The virtue of humility cures pride by removing one's ego and boastfulness, therefore allowing for the attitude of service. This is beginning to remind me of some person, somebody else. The virtue of diligence or zeal cures slothfulness, <laughs> which is kind of like laziness. It, it cures slothfulness by placing the interest of others above the life of ease and relaxation. And then finally, the virtue of patience cures wrath or anger. Boy, I needed to hear this one, brothers and sisters. I really did. Patience cures wrath and anger by taking the time to understand the needs and desires of others before acting or speaking or losing my temper. I added that. You know what? Jesus Christ is the antidote for sin. He's our example. When you think of those words that I told you to look for, desire, help, service, and others, that's the Lord. The Lord tells us in Philippians, do nothing from rivalry or conceit. That's excess. But in humility, count, your, count others more significant than yourselves in our relationships, in our marriages. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, and we should look to our own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ is the antidote for sin. So this is what it looks like when we found that antidote. We have a desire to serve the Lord first and a desire to help others, <laughs> which sounds like where we started. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and love your neighbor as yourself. <laughs> Counting others is more significant. Christ is the cure. Christ is the cure. A couple verses that help me personally, maybe they'll help you with an antidote for sin. We struggle with sin and guilt, so listen to this, these three verses. Hebrews 4 says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. No, no, we don't have that. But one, we've got Jesus, our high priest, who in every respect has been tempted just as we are. That's pretty amazing. He faced the same temptations that we face, the Lord Jesus. I love that picture. And yet, without sin. Three very important words. So then it tells us, because he understands us and our temptation, and he knows what we're facing, it says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace in time of need. Another short verse. For freedom... Christ has set us free. 
Freedom from sin is the most amazing thing in the world. It ought to make us shout once in a while, freedom from sin. It's, it's amazing. So stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. That's what it says in Galatians. And then finally, the Lord's words, repent and believe in the gospel. Here's what the gospel is. Worship team, here's what the gospel is. The gospel is that in Christ, this is what we have in Christ. We have a sent one. God sent his only son, his only begotten son, because he loved the world so much. We have a person who always obeyed the Holy Spirit, setting an example for us that we can be filled and walk in the Spirit. Different topic. I wish I could preach it today, but I can't. He always obeyed the Holy Spirit, and so can we. He denied himself as he lived. <laughs> he didn't even have a place to lay his head, it says in the Scriptures. He denied himself, even though he was a king. And he sacrificed himself. He died on the cross, willingly for you and I. And he offers salvation freely by faith, belief, trust in what he did on the cross for us. He became sin for us on the cross. We trust in that. That's the gospel. And someday, someday, soon, he's going to return. That's the whole gospel. You know what? We've got victory in Jesus. Stand up with me, please. Thank you.